The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me is uh, Mr. Eric Smolinski. We had on, uh, I think a few months ago, maybe a little bit longer, Eric. I'm always a big fan of you. And you reached out to me saying, let's do a conversation. And it's like, all right, well, let's have you as the guest. You said, let's have me as the guest. So uh, we'll see how this goes. But welcome. Stoked to be here as per usual. And I got to say, your uh, your intros are very refined at this point. It almost sounds like I'm on like a professional talk show. So you got your announcing voice and everything dialed in. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. To, I've done now over 530 or 40 of these, which is mind numbing since Spaces was introduced into the world. And yes, I, I pretty much don't even think anymore. It's yeah, you got the right tone and everything. It's beautiful. And yeah, speaking of spaces, do you know if there's any change with, you know, the platform evolution, if they're going to keep calling them spaces? Or are they changing that too? It would not surprise me. I, I the, There's so many things that are going on, I think, on the back end with X Twitter that who the hell knows, which, by the way, is, is a good reminder for everybody that's listening. And it's something I'm increasingly more tuned in on. Like we're all, if you're, if you're somebody that has a large following, you're basically renting that following from whatever platform you're on, right? Like I'm a big fan of trying to, in quote, to own the audience and diversify your platforms that you're putting your exposure on, which is why I'm trying to push threads and Instagram and YouTube. Yeah, I think it's good because no one knows if X slash Twitter, despite what looks like now a good trajectory is going to be the same in you know two, three years from now. What's not to get us too far off the rails right in the beginning, but I know that you're actually very familiar with the platform. What's your take on Musk's direction? Because for me, I know that he's talked a lot about, you know, simulating essentially what China uses and is actually, in my opinion, a really, really, really great program, which is WeChat. They have like everything on one thing. And I know that's kind of his vision with X. What do you think of that? Yeah, I could get it right. I mean, I, I tend to think if you know, you, you got to focus on doing one or two things really, really well to have an edge. But, you know, he's got the ecosystem, obviously. And, you know, the network effect is real. So maybe he can pull it off. I, it, yeah, I think the if he ended up doing it in such a way that it's a totally different look and feel for the platform, he's going to lose users. It's my sense that everything based it on. But yeah, I did develop an app. I know a little bit about yeah, you know, kind of the the UI UX side of things. So maybe he'll pull it off. I mean, I think it's I think it's good that he's paying yeah you know, those who are actively engaging. Uh, it's not enough to make a living, right? but yeah, you know, I think it's a, a nice ad. But there's still a lot of other problems. Bots are still a problem. The trolling is still a problem. The blocking thing. Who the hell knows what's going to happen with that? So again, I think it's diversification of portfolio is the same as diversification with your reach, right? On on social platforms, but. Let's get into the topic du jour. So I named this The End of the World is the Bull Case, this time for bonds. And if those who have been tracking me for a while would recognize that phrase, I use that term October 2nd of last year for maybe some similar reasons, which we'll get into as far as bond speed movement. But Eric, I want to first just, you know, Talk to talk to the audience about your background and your interest in markets. Yeah, for sure. That's actually one of the reasons why I love talking with you so much is because you have a, a pretty wide breadth view that you maintain. I'm very much a practitioner. So I'm an individual retail trader. I've been trading since 2007. It's essentially the primary wealth development vehicle for me. And I generally trade derivatives. So options and futures, generally options of some sort. So for me, I have an interest in the broader market and the broader market narrative and economics just because this stuff is fascinating to me. But at the end of the day, I focus on what can I trade. So I tell people all the time, like, 
if somehow you got really good at reading different phases of the moon and you can use that to make money, like, I don't give a shit. Use the phases of the moon to make money. That's fine. As long as it's replicable and repeatable over a long run, it doesn't matter to me. But all of that aside, the relationships between things are fascinating. And that's actually what I'm really looking forward to talk to you today, because I know that you're very, very plugged into that side of things. And to be honest, I have a lot of questions because a lot of what I've seen over the last year fascinate me. There's a lot of firsts that we've never seen before. And obviously, there's a lot of projections going forward as to what this looks like from an unprecedented ramp up cycle. So I'm really stoked to dive into details with you on that a bit. Okay, so this is going to be good because I, I don't really track the options market really at all, certainly from a day to day perspective. But I am just curious when it comes to options and pricing, does it look like broadly speaking, there's more overvaluation calls versus puts for like broad average options. Are you talking specifically for the indices or just individual? Yeah, for the S. Yeah, so like for the, for example, the S and P. I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah. Or they just kind of put call ratios, just trying to see if if there's an overpricing or underpricing, especially at the extremes. You know, trying to see if there's some tail risk hedging that's going on. Yeah, I still see generally persistent put skew, but to your point, it's leveled out pretty significantly. So as I look at something like SPY right now, if you look at just like the 47 or 30 Delta options, whether it's call or put, you can assess, and I know you know this, I'm just kind of describing it for the audience. You can assess how much premium is in in those options because a 30 Delta call and put should be otherwise very similar in terms of pricing, but that's not what happens. We typically see put skew because the market tends to fear the downside. So what that means is for the same Delta option on the put side, they generally trade at a premium. So like right now on the S&P 500 for the 20 October expiration, if you look at a 30 Delta put, which is the 420, those are trading for $3.40. If you look at a 30 Delta call, those are only trading for $2.88. So there's still very much as put skew, which is kind of the norm. But that range has absolutely contracted a bit. Not too much, especially with the recent drawdown. That 42... 420 of 4200 level on SB, everyone is talking about it, you know, based on support resistance targets, things like that. And it thinks when I see some of you talking about that as like a magnet, and other people have said this also, uh, I've noticed this today, it either never hits it or blows past it. From your experience, when everyone is talking about specific levels and acting on it in the options world, do those levels actually mean anything or uh, it, does it end up being usually something totally opposite of what most people think? I would be fascinated to know specific options traders that are predictively trading off of set levels at, in terms of price support and resistance simply because the chart is one part of the story, but options are really smart. And what that means is you can determine probabilistic outcomes from the pricing of options and the reason why I find that so attractive is because I recognize that I'm, I'm the idiot in the room. But when you're looking at the pricing of markets, you're getting all of the distilled information from all of the market participants with all of the information they have a given, at a given point in time. So what that means is I can look at pricing, I can look at open interest and kind of get a sense of where I'm seeing any sort of centralization and to your point. There is a giant, giant bit of centralization at the 420 level, even in these 20 October puts in SPY. I actually didn't, you you and I, to be clear, didn't talk about any of this ahead of time. So it's not like any of this is prepped. But what you were just highlighting is definitely, I can see that in the options, where the 420 puts right now, they have 166,000 open contracts, which on the chain from a quick glance, that's hands down the, the biggest that I see. So there definitely is something going on there of interest. So in this case, I would argue that the options markets are absolutely confirming the hypothesis you were just saying that people are trading off of. And what I can also confirm off of that is people are actually putting money behind it. Which actually, if you're going to be contrarian, would argue that may actually be, be bullish for stocks, which we can we can maybe get into. It's like everyone's trying to protect against a 420 number. Maybe that doesn't happen, but who knows? I mean, there's a lot of interesting things happening here. Now, I, I've been... I've been, I put a piece on an investor place a little bit earlier, and I myself have been surprised by what's happened in terms of defensive sectors in the volatility, most notably utilities, which the last three days have gotten utterly smoked, which is intriguing to me, even from the contrarian perspective on the put side. Now, to be clear, I myself, like I said, I think we're in the credit event. I said it 
at the end of last month, I said, I think treasuries can, you know, suddenly September be up like 20, 25%. That was like August 25th. But then September, first week, I said, well, actually, maybe treasuries are the credit event. And that's because, like everybody else, I'm looking at conditions and trying to adapt and trying to get a sense of what's likely to occur next, right? Based on what the conditions are telling you. And treasuries obviously have been selling off aggressively. Now, the whole thesis for me around the credit event is that the lag effects of the fastest rate hike cycle in history start to impact around now, which is why I said back in January, melt up, but later in the year, there's going to be some kind of high risk period. The way that it plays out, though, is going to be a real question mark. Okay, so if we use the options as the example, there's a lot of puts on 4200 strike. Okay, well, then maybe, you know, you're not going to get that before expiration. Maybe you'd have it after expiration, right? If you're going to have uh, a real tail event, maybe you have a little bit of a uh, run back and risk on assets before another bigger collapse, in which case then treasuries hopefully counter. At least that's my hope for my own strategies. The point is that I, th- I often find, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Eric, I often find that people, when they hear a thesis, they think it means that thesis sequencing-wise has to play out in one direction from the moment you say that thesis, when in reality, there are going to be squiggles between the endpoints, which might be tradable. I think that it makes total sense. I think one of the, the issues with just general financial conversations is a lot of consumers of information, they like the really neat, simple, clean, actionable snippets that you come across. And the problem is, is the, is again, as you rightly know, and most people in here probably also know that the markets, they, they literally have an infinite number of variable inputs. So the idea that you make a thesis at 10 o'clock today and then the thesis is going to play out perfectly over a given time frame as new information is continually injected into that system. And it's just silly. The problem is, I think we just have an urge and a desire for these really neat explanations. But I can also tell you that specifically, if you're a trader, you throw that out the window right away. You like you get over that real quick and you kind of focus again on like what's tradable, what is usable information versus what's kind of interesting to know. For that exact reason, because as soon as a thesis comes up to exactly to your point, I've never seen one play out perfectly. Like one of my favorite examples is everybody reveres, you know, Michael Byrne. He's called some really big things in the past. And this uh, I'm obviously nowhere near as smart as that dude is. But if you look at his calls over essentially his trading career, he's called 20 of the past two recessions. What that means is he's throwing a lot of fucking darts at the dartboard and a couple are sticking. And Again, he's making a shit ton of money doing it. So I am in no way, you know, nailing him in any capacity. But I also use that as a benchmark that some of literally the brightest minds in this space clearly have that kind of track record. So to me, it really comes down to understanding the movement of information and that, to your point, it's not a straight line. Okay, so so there's a lot of actually interesting direction there. By the way, that, that point about Burry, I think, like the, the natural response by some troll would be, Oh, broken clock is right twice a day, right? But that the point you just mentioned about Burry is is exactly why that's such a stupid line. Because you know it doesn't matter if you're right twice a day if the magnitude of being right destroys the frequency of smaller magnitudes being wrong every other minute. It's like there there are there are times when if you just get a couple of these fat pitches, you can keep swinging, keep swinging, keep swinging, but all you need is one or two home runs and you win the game, right? But it's hard for you to understand that it's about magnitude more than frequency. It's effectively expected value. Uh, historically, on a rolling six-month basis, I think it was six months. I have to go back and take a look. There are plenty of junctures where, you know, in quotes, cash is the best-performing asset class, right? meaning which would be short duration, right? which would happen largely because treasuries and stocks lose money right? between two, uh, between two endpoints. What I've never seen, and this is where I think there's a big nuance in terms of the way that I think about things and the way people are not understanding my own approach, what was unusual and still is unusual in the last year and a half plus is not that stocks and treasuries lost money together, but the way that it happened, which is why I always go back to its path mattering more than prediction. Last year was unusual in that, yes, stocks and treasuries both lost money, but the way that it happened was more than just correlation on a year over year basis. It was that 75% of the weeks, the S&P, sorry, 74% of the weeks Long duration treasuries lost money. 
So if you look at weekly data, 74% of the weeks of the year, last year, they were red, they lost money. That never happened before in history from a sequencing path perspective. And 59% of the weeks last year, the S&P 500 lost money. The only other time the percentage of the year stocks lost money with that degree of frequency was 1931. So from a modeling perspective, if you're going to think about sequencing and path, which I always go back to is all that matters, that's the thing which was unequivocally a surprise, right? It was more than just the correlation of the two on a year-over-year basis. It was the the weekly relationship and way that it played out. Now, having said that, obviously you're seeing that again, right? You're seeing treasuries selling off hard with equities selling off hard. Now, when I said in October of last year, the end of the world is the bull case. The argument I made back then prior to the December risk that I highlighted back then was that the way that yields and the speed with which yields were rising with treasuries was so sharp. I jokingly said back then, like I did actually recently, you know, if the speed were to continue like this, then you're going to have mortgage rates be 20% next month. I said in October of last year, if treasury, if the speed with which treasury yield keep rising continues at that pace, it's an end of the world scenario because as I, just said earlier today, the system can't function when your safe collateral is acting more violently than that which you're leveraging against it. So the argument back in October last year was you can't make a bet on treasury yields continuing to spike at that level. So you might as well bet on stocks. And that was the whole melt up argument for stocks. The end of the world was the bull case for stocks. Now you have a similar setup here, you can argue, right? Because again, the speed with which treasuries are selling off in price and rising yield it's the same argument I made back then. That's like a cataclysmic end of the world type of setup. The difference this time around is that stocks have not, are not at the October lows, right? And the sentiment is still, you know, from what I'm seeing, you can correct some wrong of this, still pretty bullish, despite, and whereas last year the sentiment was very bearish. So there are some nuances, right? If, if you go with me, it's the same argument that the speed of the yield is unsustainable, that it has to correct itself then maybe this time around the melt-up actually is more in treasury prices recovering, meaning yields falling, I mean, the speed with which we've seen abating, that becomes initially bullish for stocks, but because there's still a lot of fraud in stocks, stocks still maybe go down. And if the yield curve is right about a recession, and if the uninverting of the yield curve, which is starting to happen, is right, then the stock market should start to anticipate recession next year now. Does that make sense? Like I'm trying to give like, the context of the freezing around the end of the world's the bull case from back then to why I'm saying that now and why it's different in terms of just the interaction of bonds, treasures in particular. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. And stocks. Yeah, I'm, I'm following you. I had two following questions from that. First is... Does the strength of the dollar factor into this at all for you? Yeah, and uh, you know it's interesting. I um I had said it, you know, bef- before actually the one week where the dollar was down hard. I said, you know, the dollar. I said actually, the dollar and treasuries are about to have the greatest comeback since Lazarus, right? After having largely gotten the top of it right in the conditions argument in I think it was August of last year. But the um you had this like unbelievable streak right in the dollar. You look at UUP that ETF. I mean, it's like every single week it's been positive. Now that is a risk. Right. Because, you know, if the dollar were to keep rising at that pace, yeah, you better believe that's a credit event that then also manifests, you know, outside the U.S. because strong dollar becomes a stress point for foreign borrowers. Now, I would argue that very short term, the dollar is probably maybe about to turn because that's I mean, maybe it's, it is going to have a super spike. But, you know, if I were a gambling man, I'd say, you know, that consecutive nature of the dollar that that may actually be about to reverse. We, oddly enough, may actually for a moment in time benefit emerging markets, which maybe we can touch on on a relative basis, even in the context of, you know, this kind of credit event that I think is unfolding. But yeah, the dollar has been obviously a stress point, right? Now, we are seeing a repeat of what we saw last year, right, where the dollar is the risk-off play. It's not long-duration treasuries, 
maybe some of that dollar strength is because you just have people, foreign investors, you know, uh, foreign capital just literally sitting in the dollar, sitting in short rates. Could be possible. But that remains one of the more important dynamics here, right? Because it's like, all right, if the dollar were to keep rising, that's real nasty. If the dollar were to reverse, it would give some time for the market to suck in a few more bulls before maybe, you know, a bigger risk off pulse comes. But again, I'm speculating on the sequencing, but there's no question the dollar, I think, has surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I know it definitely has me. It's been something that popped up on my trading radar, not as something as I typically trade, but as something that was making interesting moves as something to gain a position. And so I completely agree with you in terms of it catching people off guard because it's not something I expected to move the way it did. The other question I had for I said I had two was... You know, the Fed is the talk of the town. The rates movements is, you know, always topical. But I genuinely am curious how this fits into your thesis. I'm looking at the probabilistic outcomes, you know, full or rate cuts, no changes in hikes, looking at the futures market. So in November, right now, today, it's a 86% chance looking like no change. Then for 13 December, 21 January, 20 March, there's like a 30% probability of a hike that goes essentially flat the 1st of May. And then this is what I'm curious about. In 12 June, there is now a 49% probability of a cut. What does that cadence mean to you, if anything? And specifically, what do you postulate starts to happen when we start cutting rates? Okay, so this, I think it, it's interesting because again, yeah, this is all about path behavior too. So let, let's play it out. Let's say we're in a crisis, right? That started on the long end from the treasury side, right? By the way, the going back to the dollar, the dollar appreciation combined with the yield spike, we're actually going through enormous tightening, like right now. Like the last several weeks have been enormous tightening because it's more than just interest rates, right? The dollar rising is a form of sucking liquidity out. It is a tightening mechanism from a currency perspective. So I, I think people are just on the side are massively underappreciating Exactly how much you know the tightening is is happening between you know with, with the with the moves that the Fed are, is not directly controlling right just on the long end of the curve plus the currency side. Okay, now so let's play it out. Let's say the if I'm right that Treasuries are the credit event, and let's say the reverse carry trade happens, which is part of my thesis around what could also cause pressure as the Bank of Japan tries to save the yen. I think. Okay, so how would they do that? They probably sell treasuries, which, by the way, they may have already been doing throughout this. Okay, now that's going to create even more supply on treasuries. So the, the Fed does not want to see the long end of the curve keep on trading like a shitcoin in terms of the speed. So I suspect they would not cut rates if I'm right about the way this unfolds. They would probably either stop QT or maybe resume quantitative easing to buy up the long end of the curve while still hiking rates on the short end, right? So they try to stabilize the long end while still maybe, you know, hiking rates on the short end. If things really get hairy, they would then lower rates, right? Now, I keep going back to the 87 example. 1987, you know, there were no such things back then as, I don't think, as as uh, probabilities on futures for, for what the Fed will do next. But 1987, the Fed was raising rates all throughout the melt-up, and then the 87 crash happened, and then the Greenspan pivoted and lowered rates. And that's still a possibility. It's a non-zero possibility. It's not high, right? but it's a non-zero possibility that the Fed could still lower rates this year, that all these bets are wrong, right? I just think it's more likely they would probably intervene on the, on the balance sheet side-wise, because even optically, you think about it, most people, you know, average Americans that are not necessarily watching financial markets, they can understand, or at least they think they understand interest rates. The idea of, you know, adding to the balance sheet is not a headline that typically gets attention, right? It would be the Fed hiked rates or the Fed lowered rates, whereas a headline like the Fed has stopped QT or the Fed is resuming QE, that's not going to, mostly we're not going to even understand what that means. So I think optically, if they're going to do anything to try to mitigate the potential volatility we're now in continuing, it's going to probably be more on the balance sheet side, not on the short rate side. So those, those probabilities could still be right. Unless you have a real nasty equity tail event, which, again, is a non-zero probability. Got it. I'm following you. And you mentioned another piece of that puzzle that I'm curious about, which is the consumer spending side of things and kind of the consumer resilience. I obviously keep a pretty close eye on those metrics, again, more out of curiosity. But 
How do you think those factor into that decision cycle? Yeah, I mean, and we're going to see, right, with these, the student loan resumptions on this. I keep going back to I, the, the disconnect between the idea that consumer is strong while retailers are so weak just to me doesn't add up. Um, again, I could be off on that, but it, it, the stock side, you look at XRT, is not telling you the consumer is resilient, like at all. And yeah, fundamentally, you can argue that, yeah, between student loan repayments, all this stuff, that's going to have a big slowdown on the economy. Actually, I'm curious from just on the ground because you, you know, listen, you've done well, you know, in your life and you've got a, a you know, successful trading career. And I know you've been traveling actually quite a bit the last several months. T- tell us some stories on the ground. I mean, you see the, the, the narrative is as, as bullish on the consumers on the spending side in, in practice or, yeah, just in your own travels, have you seen that things have been relatively weak? I mean, at least from my perspective, things seem ceteris paribus. Like when I'm going through the airport, it's fucking packed. The last trip that we just did was to Iceland, which is a notoriously expensive place. And that place was busy as shit. The interesting thing, though, about Iceland is there's not necessarily a lot of Americans. There are some, but not like a, a ton. So I'm not sure that's a super usable benchmark. But some of the other local trips that we've taken too. I don't know. It's it's hard for me to say, especially because I have a statistics background. So I'm really anti, you know, using my personal anecdotes for anything. So I understand that the observation window for that is very small. But based on that, it I don't see anything significantly different than what I've seen during other periods. And I think an interesting part of that is we know, you know, that kind of low to mid bracket spenders, they're kind of through a lot of their savings via different economic benchmarks even though unemployment is still pretty strong. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of that. I don't know if you have any opinions on if that bolsters your point or if it provides a counterpoint potentially. Yeah, I'm with you, by the way. It's like, I I, I don't disagree. And I keep going back to, well, then, so let's, let's play with that. If if retailer stocks are not, or have gone sideways, not because, while the consumer is strong, that let's go with that narrative actually is real. But maybe what's holding them back is the risk of default because a lot of these retailers are levered and they're going to have to roll over their debt into much higher rates you know, in the coming years. Maybe that's also maybe it's more being held back. Maybe that that sentiment around default risk because of the potential refinancing crisis that's coming. Maybe that outweighs all the consumer optimism, which actually is real. Right. I, I, I don't know. But it is it's just hard for me to kind of wrap my head around stock price being so disconnected from narrative, especially when usually narrative follows price and you're not seeing that in the thing, the things which are most sensitive to consumers. Well, I think the one thing that I would say is like, especially looking within like the S&P 500 or something, the what? That entire index is currently being propped up by the top, what, like eight performing names. So I think that that's another supporting data point, at least for your argument, And the other thing that I find fascinating is I've been, I trade earnings, right? That's one of the cool things about trading options is I get to trade earnings and I get to learn a lot about what different companies are talking about. And most of what I was seeing in terms of this earnings recovery, which we saw a lot of that quote unquote during the last cycle, a lot of it's from cost cutting. So I'm not seeing expanding revenue. I'm seeing people cutting costs from overzealous expansion last year. And that's obviously improving their short-term earnings, but that's not necessarily going to carry over into the next earnings cycle. Now, that also being said, there definitely is a bit of a centralization going on that I can clearly see because I trade IWM a lot, right? Like that's a a go-to product simply because of the volatility and then the reduction systematic risk it typically has. And the centralization within names is a thing where I'm seeing... The top performing banks, for example, are doing well, but that's at the expense of pretty much all the other banks. And it's the same thing when you look at stuff in, you know, the the highlight sectors where Apple is still relatively doing well. You look at something like NVIDIA that is getting super involved in AI and they're doing well. So it seems like a little bit of both where I can definitely see broadly weakness expanding but then I can definitely see kind of the strong getting stronger as they're soaking up more volume. I don't know if that carries over broadly enough or not, but yeah, I can't make heads or tails on the consumer picture based on that. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I am curious. And by the way, everybody that's here, make sure you follow Eric on X. Also has a great YouTube channel for those that want to learn more about the options side of things and the way he trades. I, I am curious to the, using options when it comes to earnings. So educate me a little bit on this. Are, are you doing like outright Cole's puts different 
types of options, strategies to take advantage of earnings movement? How do you, how do you even trade earnings with options? Yeah. So one of the things that options traders, we kind of salivate over is volatility. We don't really care where it is, but that's the lifeblood of options. That's really what gives options their, their movement patterns that can be super profitable. And it also gives us another mechanism to trade. Whereas prime example for earnings, which I would consider to be a catalyst driven event. For those, I'm typically trading volatility, which is a really fascinating product. A lot of people probably aren't super geeked out by it like I am, but it's a really neat way to gain exposure to a different market force that isn't directionally based. So before we go into an earnings cycle about two weeks out, and this is a really well-documented process, volatility will slowly start to expand day over day, ceteris paribus, which means everything else remaining the same, which again, as everybody should know, that's not what happens in the markets. So I bring that up because it's not as simple as two weeks out by volatility because other shit can happen that can completely derail the trade. But in isolation, that does happen. So about two weeks out, volatility starts to ramp up. And volatility, for anybody that doesn't know, it's just a stupid word for variance, for dispersion, for movement. If things move a lot, they're very volatile. If things move a little, they're not very volatile. So when we're coming into an earnings release, the market is in anticipation of a lot of information from the previous quarter, the projections for the next quarter. There's a lot of really big information that gets released to the market writ large and then quickly discounted into stock prices based on whatever they're saying and talking about. So that volatility is a very tradable event. So I'm typically looking to trade what's called variance risk premiums. I'm not going to lull everybody to sleep. That literally just means the difference between implied, which is what we're guessing volatility is going to be, compared to realized, which is what volatility was. That's it. So you can do that via short straddle, short strangles, stuff like that. That's typically my go-to. How have you? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. traded the last yeah, several weeks here. I mean, obviously there's a decent VIX spike and we'll see if that, it's, it's funny like when I said imminent you know, towards the end of the last two weeks, that it's like the risk is here. It's, well, it's, it's fact, right? I mean, the VIX, when it has to have motion like this, it's either going to break out suddenly or it's going to come right back in. It seems like it got, you know, close to the 20 level or it touched it and then just got hammered down again. Have you been trading through the vol here? This has been such a fun year for me. These are the years that like, I kind of live for because while it's unfortunate that a lot of other people struggle when they're trading equities, it's like the exact market that works well for options trading. So, so far this year has been honestly just a killer year. And the main positions I've been rotating around are directional trades via ratio diagonals, which is kind of just a directional option strategy, but I've been fading things a lot. I've been fading utilities. I've been fading real estate. I've been fading things that show weakness, have showed persistent weakness over multiple timeframes, as in like five days, three months, six months, one year compared to the rest of the indices and sectors. And then I'm funny enough, you mentioned VIX. I started building a long volatility position the beginning of, no, I'm sorry, the mid of September. So like two and a half weeks ago. And I've literally based that entire trade predicated on us falling to volatility lows. That's one of the reasons why volatility is so freaking cool. Because if you look at a even a five-year chart for something like VIX, the lowest it's been in five years is down to 11. So volatility has a floor baked in. It's not going to go to zero because there's always some semblance of fear. So I have different alerts that start to tell me when VIX is getting to very interesting levels not that I know with certainty it's going to make a move, but I know probabilistically, specifically in relation to the risk to reward that I'm taking on, that it's like a no-brainer trade. So I actually have 
a ratio call diagonal on in VIX right now that I've been trading around. So it's been a lot of catalyst driven events when they're available. Last few weeks, not so much. Definitely trading directional weakness specifically. So I'm trading a lot of things to the downside. I do have some long delta trades that I'm looking to start sliding out, but with no degree of size until I see some sort of confirmation of strength, which I don't see. And then volatility trades outright. So that, yeah, it's kind of been the, the go-to so far. And I'm going to assume, I mean, are, are you factoring, you know, contango backwardation on the future side with, with, you know, VIX future? Cause that's the problem with like the VIX ETFs, right? You got the, the constant bleed because of the contango. So here's the thing that's really overblown. People have kind of in a broad sense, they say, well, volatility products or leveraged ETFs are not suitable for holding because of the rolling and exactly what you're talking about, where we have to close a front month position to establish a new position a couple months out at an expense. That doesn't mean it's not suitable to hold in any way. And it also doesn't mean that you're going to lose money holding the trades. You, you really don't have to. It comes down to you are going to give up some edge when you do get a move or in the size of the move required in order to see a decent profit. And there are different holding periods that you have to consider. Like, for example, I'm not going to buy shares of VXX and hold it for 10 years. That's not going to work super great. But to the same token, like if you're trading something like Qs or something that's a two or three times leveraged ETF, people apply that same philosophy. And the thing is, is you can still make money on them. You can look at the chart. You can see that you can make money on them. The only thing is, is that you're not going to get the dollar for dollar move. So if something is supposed to move 2x, realistically, you might see 1.6, 1.7x move. That's the drag that you're experiencing, and that's where it manifests, is when we're seeing those kinds of moves. So the short answer, well, I guess the long answer now cut short, is contango and backwardation matter for longer-term holdings, and you can also capture those themselves via the roll yields. But when you're holding products like this, it's not make or break. You can still be completely profitable trading the products. You just have to be mindful of the time frame that you're holding them and understand the impact that the drag has on the positions. But I wouldn't blacklist volatility products, leverage products because of that. No, I think I think that's a fair point. It's just, it kind of goes back to my my broader philosophy or mindset, which is, you know, going along the VIX is basically, you know, it's like it's a short position. Right. So effectively exactly. on, on equities. Yep. Right. So, it, but yeah, you know, again, you have to time it so well and so perfectly. And I think just got to be careful on that. And so it sounds to me like you think that regardless of what we've gone through, volatility is going to, you know, on average, be more elevated going forward. Yeah. Well, it's, now it's at an interesting point where I completely agree with your perspective, where we don't hang out at 17, 18 for long periods of time unless there's a good reason to. So what I fully expect here is either we're going to see a catalyst that would continue to drive it up or that we would slowly start to trickle back down below 15. But what I can say is that the VIX does not hang below 13 for long periods of time. That's when if somebody sneezes when they're at some sort of summit, then that sends everybody to a tizzy and volatility will pop up because of that. So I am not necessarily looking to trade midterm moves and volatility. It's not interesting to me. And that can be a fool's errand. At least I'm big enough of a fool that it is an er fool's errand. But when it's at extremes that I can clearly demarc and then probabilistically assess, again, like below 13, fascinated by that. So yeah, I agree with you here that with VIX hanging around 17, it needs a reason to stay here. Otherwise, it's not going to live here for an extended period of time. But what I would say is that even if you look back over the past six months, the VIX was up to a high of like 21. And then if you look at the past year, it's up at 34. So as everybody here probably knows, the VIX has plenty of room to the upside here. It just needs a reason to move. And whether or not that catalyst emerges, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, I think anything, at least in the market, the way it is right now, VIX below, VIX below 13 is a bargain. And it's something that I've, I've scooped up long, deep, in the money options, essentially with the longest expiration available to me at the time, which was the 22 May 24s. And then I started building a position out in 18 June 24. So these are things that I'm willing to hold for six months, eight months until I can get a move. Speaking about volatility, I'm sure you've seen the move index and you know, volatility in the bond market and treasuries in particular. If you're an options trader, I would think trading options on something like a TLT gets to be really 
interesting here. Any have you done any kind of trades on long duration treasury ETFs like like TLT? Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up. For a long time, I have a couple levels that now that I'm looking at the chart are completely no longer relevant. But I was originally planning to trade TLT in a completely different angle. The problem with TLT here is it is at an extreme, which obviously you've highlighted. So trading this with options is a little tricky, at least in my opinion, because markets can behave strangely for extended periods of time. So until I start to see some sort of significant catalysts changing, I definitely would trade TLT. It would be back on the table. But right now I look at it and it's trading very strange compared to the way I would expect it to be here. It's something that if I had caught it earlier, I would have been happy to fade it again. I started fading it back in April, like the beginning of April of this year, when we started hitting those peak highs of like 108 and we started contracting, but I got out of it at the end of May, right? So I took it from like an eight point move down to a hundred, which, you know, paper hands may go, but that was like a decent move, I thought at the time. And then it kind of got into this defunct drop off. So I haven't traded it in the last few months. I watch it. But yeah, stuff like that, that starts to really break traditional molds. It can be very, very tradable events, but they're less interesting to me. And it's mostly because I'm not looking for something that could work. I'm looking for things that at least based on the breadth of evidence and data that I have are very likely to work. And that's kind of what I've hunt, what I'm hunting for. And when things start acting super strange like that, less so for me. Yeah, that that makes sense. Just funny because I, I just given the volatility on the long end of the curve, I, I think four years ago, five years ago, nobody thought about sort of the the options convexity potential with long duration treasuries. And then yep. now, right now, I got to see if you look at the volume changes, it's got to be through the roof compared to you know five years ago. Yeah, and it's funny too because so typically, remember how I was telling you earlier that we tend to see put skew, where you'll see a higher open interest of puts compared to calls. If you look at something like TLT, right now across all expirations, there's 3.3 million open interest in calls and 950,000 open interest in puts. So if that doesn't tell you where the market thinks things are going for bonds, I don't know what else does. That's a giant, giant disparity to call skew, which is typically not the case even with even with tlt yeah interesting interesting point and observation there again everybody here please make sure you follow uh, eric if you want to come up you know we'll talk for a few more minutes here but feel free to click that bottom left micro press button and i will have this as a podcast uh, soon enough and also make sure you subscribe to our youtube channel uh, as well do you get a sense that most traders investors are uh, kind of calling it in for the year or are you seeing just in general more uh, contracts, more activity, a little bit more manic trading, you know, uh, that could persist? I mean, usually this is supposed to be a sleepy tide time for volume, but I get the sense that there might be a lot more activity than people uh, normally would do. Yeah, it's fascinating from at least the options trading markets because the centralization of zero GTE volume is it's fucking insane. Like the amount of zero DTE trading happening right now is literally wild. There's a lot of really interesting opportunities then because I think the market is still attempting to quantify what that even means in terms of how you can trade that time frame. There are a lot of people coming in there to gamble and see if they can make a bunch of money in a day because that sounds appealing to anybody who doesn't. But once you look at the probabilities of it, it's not super great. But from an options trading perspective, open interest is still super high. It tends to kind of trend high. As far as equities, I wouldn't be able to speak to that intelligently, so I would forego in terms of you know typical equities volumes. But I do think next month is going to be fascinating because you know there's always all these different. I don't know. I feel like they need to make like a fucking rhyme book for traders that talk about the different months and what the market's supposed to do, right? Buy May, go away, sell in June, and then some gloom, whatever. But uh, but the the point I'm making though is next month typically has a bit more of a bearish tone to it. And it's typically associated with slightly lighter volume leading into the end of the year. But at least from what I'm seeing on the derivative side, I'm not seeing that. So I don't know how that carries over. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jeff Hirsch of Stockers Almanac has some interesting stuff on that. He always notes that 
October tends to be the the bear killer. So everyone worries about, you know, October crashes and big declines, which, by the way, I mean, if I'm right about a credit event, depending upon when it happens in October, I mean, that will be somewhat consistent with history, but we'll see. Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a, a couple of things. The first one, exactly to your point, I think the reason why you're seeing IV, which right now in TLT is still elevated, it's still at 20% compared to, you know, 15% in HV. So you're exactly right. That's a good observation. You're looking at the right thing there. The reason being is lots of people do lots of things for lots of reasons. So I'm not in the business of looking at large blocks of trades and guessing with everybody else. Now, here's what I would tell you. If I see that much open interest on the calls, specifically in TLT, and I start to see bullish momentum building in TLT, sure, then I will look to follow that trend. But the fact of the matter is, if you are buying calls in any capacity, you want the product to go up. And if you look at had you bought calls essentially any time from July 19th on, you're not getting paid. So regardless of the breadth of experience and all of the reasons behind the different trades that go into the markets, I like to look for an anomaly and pay attention to it. But at no point would I commit capital to it until I see the requisite movement. Now, funny enough, a more interesting trade to me out of the two that you just listed was a pairs trade between something like TLT and IBF or the different duration bonds those pairs are very, very disjointed. And I think that there's some really great opportunities there or even trading the volatility itself within TLT, which is very clearly trending IV overstated to historic volatility, which means that there's some decent variance risk premiums in there. Those are things that I can see and I know they're there and they're persistent. So those kinds of things are things that I would commit capital to right now because I can see them. Whereas just seeing a ton of open interest in the call side versus the put side it's one of those things that like, I'll add it to my notebook. I'll, it's something that I would keep an eyeball on, but I never, I always never put first things first. And if I'm going to trade a bullish strategy, I need bullish momentum. And that's not what's happening right now. So there's no reason for me to put the trade on. Mike, I, I had another question. I had another question for you. For the credit event that you've been talking about, I understand nobody can predict the future, but if it were to unravel, what are kind of like the first large moving pieces that you think happen first before the whole thing unfolds? I think step one is what we see with treasuries. It, it just goes back to the end of the roll is the bull case for bonds. The speed of it is is very disorderly and honestly very disturbing. And you can argue here tomorrow that this is about issuances. It's more than that, just in terms of the, the way that it's played out. It's like it's another glitch. It is. I am by no means the conspiracy guy, but it is amazing to me that you had that that in quotes bad print, which yeah, okay, like it was, you know, whatever two three weeks ago, and you're right back there, right? I mean, it's almost like they were floating it out as to see what the market reaction would be, or trying to see could the market behave uh, absorb it. And by the way, the fact that all this is happening with these constant headlines that I'm sure you're seeing around Fed officials saying. There's a lot of active hedge funds that are shorting treasuries because of this basis trading, causing all kinds of dislocations. Like now the hedge funds are fucking with the system in a really legitimate, disturbing way, if that's the case. So it, it has, and that's why I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier in the month. It's clear to me that treasuries are the event, right? I mean, it's, it's, you're seeing it in the speed and the movement. Now, because that, again, I go back to the system can't survive, you know, when you're so levered with your safe collateral acting as volatile as it has been. I suspect you'll see a similar pattern of what we saw of October, meaning both bonds and stocks, you know, rally, meaning the TLT side of the long duration end, you know, runs and price lowers and yield while equities themselves stabilize. Okay. But then there becomes a divergence. Now, I've brought up that path before. It hasn't happened just yet, but I still think that's a, that is a scenario that plays out where the next phase of the credit event, I think, would be stabilization, oddly enough, but then divergence where treasuries actually then keep on running the flight to safety trade finally reasserts and then stocks then, you know, go lower. And it it is interesting because if the appetite for higher rates, if it really does become as problematic as I think it's starting to be, that means the Fed is going to be stuck in terms of how much we can stop or, you know, reduce inflation further from the fixed income side, from the rate side, which means the stock side probably has to do the heavier lifting in terms of drawdown next. So, I, the sequence does seem like, you know, you had treasuries break very substantially, stocks fell alongside, both then rally, then diverge. And it's on that divergence where I think the tail event really gets to be uh, conceivably quite ugly. 
again, I could be totally wrong. I cannot predict the future better than anybody else. But so far, it looks like that's sort of the sequence that is, I think, most like. Got it. So then on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being totally fucked, five being like medium fucked, how fucked are we? I think it's infinity. To, okay. to, to be clear, just, just so everyone knows, I'm very optimistic. But no, it's like, by the way, let me make something very clear. I am as nervous as those that are tracking and believing in the work that I'm putting out. Okay, now why am I saying that? Because path matters more than prediction. So again, I could be right that there's a tail event that's out there for risk on assets, for equities. The question from a practical standpoint is, and then would treasuries respond, you know, the way they did even prior to, you know, when you look at this, the studies on treasuries relative to equities and high volatility prior to the Volcker 80s period. So I'm nervous myself. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm right about, you know, a, a real nasty decline in risk on assets because of what's happened on treasuries. What matters is will the path play out and the sequence play out in a way that actually is beneficial towards what is really my career, right? So I'm as nervous as everybody else. Now, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. But the point is that, uh, make no mistake about it, when I say we're all fucked, I'm actually being quite literal because I have no idea how it's going to play out exactly. All I know is that the conditions favor something bad happening, but I don't know the exact mile marker. And oftentimes it's that exact mile marker that determines actual performance. Yeah. Well, what I can say is as unfortunate it is to hear that, for especially for like fixed rules thing. That's one of the cool things about being a retail trader, especially an options trader, because they're in that whole bull market from 09. It was hella boring for me, like decent returns, but nothing to write mm-hmm. home about. But COVID on, it has been the gravy train. So to be honest, I'm buying into the end of world thesis where everybody gets fucked because I'm trying to trade some fucking options. So it's good for me. Sorry, man. Well, on that fucking note, uh, everybody, <laughs> everybody, please follow Eric and hopefully I'll see you all next time. Everybody enjoy the weekend. Uh, and for those that happen to be on the East Coast, uh, stay dry because this uh, this rain that we're seeing is uh, pretty wild. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. Yeah. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.